Hello and welcome to My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast where we help game masters explore new systems as we build and run their very first one-shots, and then circle back around to discuss what went right, what went wrong, and how we can make their games even better. This season, we're discussing anamnesis and solo tabletop role-playing games. And joining me once again is any nominated tabletop role-playing game designer and owner of Blinking Birch Games, creator of Anamnesis, No Wizards Here, Six Figures Under, and the upcoming Death of the Author. Very pleased to welcome back to the show, Sam Lee. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. Thanks for having me on again. Of course. Good to see you again. I'm very excited to talk about this game and hear your thoughts on how our radio drama version of Anamnesis uh, came out. I'm so excited about it. I I loved it. <laughs> We'll talk about it, but oh my gosh, it was so cool to listen to. I I adored it. I mean, that's my first question. What'd you think? And clearly yeah, it's a positive. Great. <laughs> it was very cool. It was, I mean, I'm a fan of audio dramas in general. And so to hear a, uh, really to hear any RPG turn into an audio drama is such a cool idea. And I feel like so many games um, lend themselves really well to that. Um, so, you know, obviously hearing Anamnesis turn into an audio drama is just fantastic. I thought it was, I loved how things wrapped up at the end. I'll talk about that later, but, um, it was really, it was really fun to see the progression of the story as it's being built in a way. I've talked about this with a bunch of people, but most recently, um, Taylor Moore from Fortunate Horse came on the podcast and I talked to him about, uh, cause he's really big in narrative play podcast. So like very mm-hmm. sound design heavy, you know, Worlds Beyond Number, Rude Tales of Magic. Sure. And me and him both agree on this in that audio dramas and, and radio fiction stuff often have a kind of like stilted quality to it. Like you kind of have to really get into it to kind of let the the script fall away. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think with improvised games, so with actual plays and then kind of turning those into radio dramas, it often ends up being so much better because the dialogue is like, it flows more. The story kind of has this free form move to it that is just more satisfying to listen to than a scripted radio drama. And so what I love about these games, especially in the context of like podcasting and radio, is that they form such a great, essentially, you know, writer's room to sure. create a cool story. I don't know that I'd ever heard a... Actually, to clarify, the dialogue in that game was improvised, right? Or at least a lot of it was? Yeah. So so I guess let me talk about how mm-hmm. we recorded it. Because I, I, I love the radio drama that Planet Arcana did. And, oh, yeah. Uh, when, when you, obviously, you were a participant. <laughs> and when they played, you guys played with two players, but both of them were kind of active players. So each mm-hmm. one read the prompt and each one had a different major Arcana card. And they kind of played back and forth off each other. What I wanted to do with this radio drama was I wanted to remove the mechanics from the recording. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I didn't want to hear the prompts being read. I wanted that to kind of like just be implied and kind of uh, be seen in the story. So rather yeah. than hearing the prompt, you see a child swinging from their father's arm. How does that make mm-hmm. you feel? You just see the little boy swinging from mom's arm and waving at me. So I came in kind of knowing this was an experiment that could fail. Sure, sure. And, and I had Abby as my second player, so kind of a, mm-hmm. pa- a passive player that allowed me to have conversations rather than just talking to myself. I should also say on this podcast, my now fiance Abby was sitting Amazing. across from Congratulations. me. Congratulations. It's very great. <laughs> uh, I guess an interesting choice to uh, play with my fiance and then play a person who's cheating on multiple people, but you know, it, it's such is life. That's great, yeah. So yes, uh, the way we played was we talked very broadly about the beginning to start. Like, I'm going to walk into your tarot shop, essentially. Everything after that was improvised. Eventually, she would tell me to turn a card. We would turn over and see what it was. And then we pretty much just improvised from there. We'd very broadly Mm -hmm. talk about, like, kind of what it would be. But everything was just straight off the cuff. Which did prove this game is incredibly good at, like, helping you make a character I then chose to impose a bunch of limitations on myself. <laughs> Namely, I had to be able to talk to someone and like try not mm. to have, you know, too many thoughts or I didn't want to introduce additional characters. Sure. And be what we didn't do and what we maybe should have done, you know, in hindsight or if we record this again is kind of like more actively talk about what the scene's going to be and be like, "Okay, here's where the scene's going to end and we'll like improvise to get there." What we did was like 
okay, this is roughly how you feel at the beginning. Let's figure it out as we go. I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I it's I don't think I've ever listened to anything quite like this before because any any audio dramas that I've listened to in the past have been scripted, right? Mm-hmm. Or have been closer to typical actual plays where you talk about the rules as you're playing through it. So even Tin Can Audio did an audio drama of mm-hmm. Anamnesis based right off of drama. I oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Though they they played Anamnesis, but then they wrote a script that was based off of the prose writing that they had done through playing the game. So even then it was scripted. Um, but so I don't think I've ever listened to something like this where it was improvised, but then it was edited to make it sound like a radio drama. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, I just, I love the idea of it. I, and I think it worked really well, especially, you know, considering that it's being improvised on the spot. Um, a lot of the dialogue felt very natural because it was being improvised. Um, and one part that I loved was the, um, when the two characters were trying to balance the packages and they were like handing the packages off to each oh, other, like, yeah, Oh no, yeah. I've got it. I can, I got, I've got it. Right. It was so funny. <laughs> I, I was like, this sounds so natural. And there were just little moments like that throughout the show that I think really highlighted the strength of doing it this way, mm-hmm. kind of small moments of conversation that did feel very natural or like also slight kind of comedic moments that came out of that. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I do think that improvisation that way is, I guess there's there's always those lists online of like lines from movies that were improvised. They're always like the most Mm -hmm. impactful lines or whatever. There is something to that improvisation in, you know, in art, but also like in games and in, in the way you play that creates those exciting moments because you don't plan for them. It's, it's the same way yeah. where when you're a dungeon master for like a D&D game and all of a sudden someone asks about a weird NPC and you've got to create a voice on the spot and that becomes the like NPC that everyone loves. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Like it's because you're panicking and you're throwing the first things out uh, off the cuff. You're making weird choices, putting them together and creating something interesting because you have to. Like mm-hmm. a diamond is created under pressure. Mm-hmm. And when you're planning for things, you're trying to like make it make sense. And, you know, you know, here's the accent that I would do for this person. And here's, and people <laughs> can feel when it, when it's written. Yeah. But when it's just improvised and off the cuff and, and flows straight from you, it feels more real, more lived in. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, a reason that people love those NPCs. My big touchstone for this style of, of radio drama is a show that I absolutely love. It's my, probably my top five favorite things of all time. It's a show called Mission to Zix. Oh, I have heard of Mission to Zix. Mission I think I Zix. listened oh. to like one or two episodes a long time ago. I need to revisit it. It is the single best podcast out there. Oh, I got to I got to take a listen. <laughs> it's, it, for for anyone who's interested, it's an improvised radio drama, it's a comedy and it's kind of um Star Trek Star Warsy. So it's, you know, a band of ragtag uh, adventurers who are diplomats going and doing like diplomatic missions to various planets and things in the ass end of the galaxy. So very funny, very impressive. And then the the sound design is by this guy, Shane O'Connell, who is like a bad man genius. So it's incredibly cool, incredibly immersive and wildly funny. So I've been wanting to do something like that for a while. Mm-hmm. And this really presented me that opportunity. Like I saw that I could pull away the out of character talking, like talking about the rules and stuff that you can't really pull away in like, Dungeons and Dragons as easily. Mm-hmm. Being able to have that in the background and like support the story was a very cool opportunity that I was excited to do. That's great. I'm always looking for new audio dramas. So <laughs> that one's going on my list for Mission sure. Mission to Zix, 100%. Uh, the closest thing I can think of that I've heard of is Hello from the Magic Tavern, Hello which is a little different, good. but so good. <laughs> I listened to that one a lot, like uh, a few years ago, I think. I was I would always listen to it during my commute to work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just charming. I love that show. For anyone who doesn't know Hello from the Magic Tavern, the conceit of it is a, a podcaster like a guy falls into a magical portal behind a Burger King and lands up in the magical land of Foon and for some reason has a weak Wi-Fi signal and so just sets up in a tavern and interviews various people with his co-hosts uh, Eustador the Blue Wizard and Chunt the shape-shifting badger. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredibly <laughs> I, fun. 
I my favorite part about that podcast is the fact that they're they're in this fantasy with this really ridiculous fantasy world. So anytime anybody states a fact about this fantasy world, because it's all improvised, mm-hmm. anytime anybody makes up a fact about it, that is now fact in this world. And then, you know, if there's I remember them listing off the days of the week. It was like Wednesday, Thursday blunder so you know like something <laughs> right. like that right and that's now blunders just you know and then they talk about it in future episodes and it's um it's very silly and and for anyone who's interested in like improvisation or improvisational comedy the number one rule of improv comedy is yes and whatever someone mm-hmm. says you agree with and you heighten it you you add to whatever they say so that you create this world by building and you're never taking anything away you're always adding on top and it usually the jenga tower gets higher and higher until it falls yeah. over usually to comedic <laughs> effect mm-hmm but that is good advice for playing any type of role-playing game, taking whatever anyone is saying and adding to it, but also for something like a solo role-playing game where every decision you make, you then have to take that and kind of yes and yourself, add to it, heighten it. Oh. And as you do that, you're going to make a very mundane decision early on, like I'm wearing nice shoes. Mm-hmm. And that will slowly get compounded to, you know, I am super wealthy because of this and I take care of my shoes or whatever. All those little decisions as you add on top of each other can become a character. And I think in something like a solo role-playing game where you're trying to find that story through these, these prompts that can be, they kind of come at you sideways in a way that makes you like forces you to think as you start building on top of those things and just yes anding yourself, you're creating a more and more and more specific character. And that's where you get someone that feels lived in. When something mm-hmm. is specific, it feels real. That's a great way to put it, yes-anding yourself. I've never thought mm-hmm. about it that way, and it's so true. Uh, it's We kind of talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but just going into a story without having an idea of where you want that story to end up, um, I think is really, I think when you yes-and yourself, that leads you into directions that you don't expect to go in. And then those little details that you're talking about um, might be details that are completely unexpected and that give the character a, or the the character or the story elements that you wouldn't have put in there otherwise, um, things that are surprising to even you. And I think that that's, I think that also helps in creating a character that feels unique and like you said, feels lived in. And there is a thing to the the prompts that if I decide to sit down and just write a character whole cloth without any outside structure, mm-hmm. okay, you come up with your, their name, their you know who they are, what they do for a living, where they live, type of thing. It's not until something comes at you a little sideways, like they saw a kid swinging from their dad's arm. How does that make you feel? Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, now you've got to actually think about what this person is like. And I think that's the real boon of these these types of games and these types of prompts, they come at you from such weird angles. Mm-hmm. And with, with the addition of the, the major arcana kind of guiding you, now it's, okay, I've got this weird question I've got to think about. Okay, here's this kind of rough guide. Now I've got to figure out how to make those two things that may be incongruous, which may mm-hmm. not quite line up. You have to make them make sense. Figure it out. Yeah. And that's the imagination of it. So when I play any TTRPG, any any group game, really, um, I tend to, whenever I make a character, usually it takes me a while to really, like, get in the shoes of that character, really kind of figure out what they're about, what the personality is like. And pretty much all the time, my original conception of this character, my original thoughts of what their personality is like, uh, changes in the first five sessions mm-hmm. of the game. Um, and then it's usually a little bit longer after that that I really feel like I fully understand them and that like their development starts taking like really interesting directions. So I I feel the same way in that if I'm trying to make a character by myself with no outside influence, it is a little bit harder for me personally to make them feel really realized. It's not until I'm playing them in a game with other people that you know, you have those choices that they're making, you have the failed roles that you make, you have the interactions with other characters, and that that helps so much in figuring them out. And I think that, as you're saying, like these these solo games kind of, they provide that. They provide kind of what the GM would be doing or what another character would be doing. They kind of provide that outside source mm-hmm. to help you figure out your character when you're just playing by yourself. 
because I end up being the game master for so many games, I rarely get to be a player. And mm. so while I feel like I'm pretty competent as a game master, I feel like I'm not a particularly great player be- just because <laughs> I haven't had that much practice. Sure, sure. Because as a game master, you build NPCs, but like I make them pretty, I don't give them much personality. I kind of like let whatever the characters, whatever the players bring to them immediately, like that mm. defines who they are. Yeah. So uh, I'm playing a game of uh, Good Society in the oh, very okay. near future, uh, sometime this week for uh, a later season. Uh, spoiler Fun. alert. <laughs> and I, I get to be a player. I'm very excited. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't done that in a while. And honestly, it's taking something like these prompts and just like going through a couple of them is something I think I, I'm actually going to do because I'm like, okay. I got to figure out who this person is because we yeah. only, we're only playing one session. Like we're doing a right. one shot. So it's better to know coming in a little bit than figuring it out like three hours into a game. So like mm-hmm. this could also be just like a fun little hack for anyone who wants to learn a little more about their character for any other system. Sure. Do I love that idea. I know that Anamnesis was played in Friends at the Table in their Song Fiel hmm. season. And it was near the end of the season um, for one of the characters. And I it was really interesting because since the game is typically the game is really written as like this is a new character that you're making and this is like something that you can play to help create a character or just play independently i'd never really considered the idea of taking a character that you already know really well that you've you know you've already been playing with in a game and then to play anamnesis and then for that character to experience this memory loss and go through the game of anamnesis. And that's what they did in the season. And it was really interesting to listen to and to see how, how they managed to integrate it with this already known character. So that was, that was really fascinating. I never thought about playing it that way. That is pretty cool. I would like to try that. Yeah, I kind of, I, I do too. <laughs> I haven't tried it myself yet, but I think it could be it could be interesting for if you are if you're playing a character and you're feeling a little like stuck in their development or if you've been playing them for a while and you still feel like you're not quite understanding them even if you play it like non-canonically, right? I mm-hmm. think that it could help bring out new elements to a character. I was just talking with uh, Abby about this before we started recording. I am very excited to play this game again without all the restrictions I've placed on myself through production. Like just playing mm-hmm. it as it was meant to be played will be fun. Yeah, I, I think especially the first time playing Anamnesis, it sounds like there was probably some trickiness to um, keeping that like dialogue going and all of that. There, Yeah, it's all the little things you don't think about where all of a sudden sure. like, you reference the third character, like, okay, are we going to do voices now? Like, no, we got a <laughs> no third character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was very fun. It was, it was a very fun puzzle to solve, you know, in the production space while also mm-hmm. like learning this game. Sure. It felt natural with with just having the two characters. I know that there were, you know, there was some, there was the woman and the child and then the people Mm -hmm. on the street and the character who comes in at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't feel like, like not including their voices felt fine when listening to it. It still felt like... Right. Um, it it didn't feel like oh we have to leave these people out. Um, it 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 sounded great. You're actually touching on a thing that I want to talk about because mm-hmm. so so we spoke earlier about you know always yes anding yourself. So you're always building on top of things. You're not taking things away. As I was editing, so 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 we played through the game, mm-hmm. and then I had a big chunk of audio and we edited it down to this uh, what what you heard last week. As I was editing, I realized there were some like unresolved plot lines that were established early on that I never addressed again. So that my character spoke a different language. Yes. Never addressed (laughs) again. I I actually, I re-listened this morning Mm -hmm. (laughs) before sitting down to this. And yeah, and I I caught that too. I was like, oh, that's so interesting. I think it's. Anyway, sorry, but it, please. So yeah, like that's never addressed mm-hmm. again. The the 7.30 p.m. date that my character had never oh, really yeah. addressed again. It's kind of just implied <laughs> that like he's walking out on another person or something. Mm-hmm. So as I was editing, because I'm, you know, I'm thinking of like podcast producing brain rather than gameplay brain. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, we should go back and like fix that. We should go do pickups and like add in a few lines of I shove the date card back in my pocket when, you know, sure. my partner walks in or something. Me and Abby talked about it, we, and we decided to leave it as is to kind of show what, what the gameplay was actually like, because that's what sure. the show's about. It's about showing yeah. the first time, you know, kind of warts and all. 
these particular warts covered up with beautiful post-production. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of makeup on, on this particular wart. Gotcha. But that, that kind of did lead me to the question of anyone who plays any of these games should play them however they want. But mm-hmm. what, what is your opinion on people playing like straight through and allowing those kind of loose ends to go unresolved or going back and kind of like editing bits they, they wrote as they go? I think it depends on, I think it depends on the person and depends on the game. Actually, primarily, I think it depends on the purpose of the Mm -hmm. game, uh, why you're playing this game. So, you know, if you're making a character or if you're exploring part of yourself or if you're just trying to make a full start to finish story, I think that those, each of those things have different pieces and mm-hmm. some for some of them it might feel better to kind of have all those loose ends connected. So I think it really depends on personal preference and the reason that you're making it. But personally, I don't really have qualms with loose ends, but I also don't have qualms with people going back and editing things. I think that's something like this audio drama, you know, typically in an audio drama, you have a lot of the loose ends tied up traditionally, right? That's not the case with all audio dramas. So having the loose ends open in this one was something that you don't typically see in an audio drama. But I actually thought it was really fun because for me, after I re-listened to it this morning, I was like, oh, you know, I wonder why that character was speaking a different language. And I wonder who this date, like, was this date for this guy that he was seeing or was a state for this new person um you know right. so and it kind of made me it lets you have it lets the listener have these gaps to fill in themselves and to like really think about and i think that's kind of fun too where in you know if you're if you have two people listening to this and then they go back and they discuss it together they're probably going to have different thoughts or different theories about like what was going on here. If you're making a character for a game, it it might be interesting to leave things open-ended to see what comes out as you play in the game or after you've played all of Anamnesis, right? After you finish Anamnesis, you might want to go back to those loose ends and be like, oh, well, what language was my character speaking and what does that tell me about my character's background, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it can depend. It really is, I think, personal preference. I do like having loose ends in something like this because it kind of implies a bigger world. Yes. Like it's yes. not, there's not just a bubble that you got to observe. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of threads that are, you know, unresolved. They're, they're yeah. the, the cord that will never have its third note mm-hmm. and allows you to fill it in as you please. There's another whole part of my producer brain that's like, what the fuck is the answer, my guy? You got to <laughs> tell me. There's yeah, no part yeah. two. Mm-hmm. Who is the state with? But I think it is it is fun to kind of see how those things while those answers never get resolved, they still inform the character. Like the yes. reason that I ended up pulling the tower at the end was because of that 7.30 date card. Or like that was probably mm. the earliest portion of it where I was like, okay, this guy, it, it, in my head, it was like got a number from a bar while yeah, he like left yeah. this guy. So in, in my head, I was like, oh, okay, this guy's like fucking around. He's about to find out. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so, you know, I, I, I saw the tower the and I was like, it's gotta, it's gotta be that. That, yeah, that rules. When I, I mean, I, um, as, you know, being very familiar with anamnesis, uh-huh. <laughs> I knew that when you had the tower come up in the game, that that was the card that you had chosen for this character at the end yes. of the game. And so, uh, you know, a listener who isn't familiar with anamnesis might not realize that, but for me listening and being like, oh, you chose the tower because the tower represents this character. Mm-hmm. I lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was really excited. I was like, oh, the tower is such a tasty choice yeah, here. Yeah, figure looking um, good right at the end. Oh, I like jaw dropped, pencil down, like <laughs> fully, fully was just, oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was just, I loved, honestly, that this character was so unlikable <laughs> in yeah. such a fun way. I don't really see many people play, and a lot of people play Anamnesis where their past is 
they did something in their past that they don't like, or they were kind of an unlikable character in their past, and then kind of in their present future, they they change, you know, they um, they reinvent themselves, that sort of thing. I, I don't know that I've ever heard a game of anamnesis where the character stays unlikable <laughs> through like the entire story. And to be honest, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it so much. I thought it was so fun. It was just, uh, it was really fun to listen to. And just seeing this character kind of, progressively like learn more about himself um while also kind of staying learning about himself but not learning from it <laughs> yes yes <laughs> adored it yeah it was it was a really cool choice to make and i really loved it yeah i i found with characters that i've played most recently like my character in our 10 candles game mm. the character in this i have found myself gravitating towards people who are unlikable because there's a weird like comedy to that Sure, or, or yeah. It's so rife with comedy to have them like see the lesson and not learn from it. Yes, yes. And remain the same despite everyone trying to help them. Mm-hmm. I found it to be fun. It's not who I am in real life. It, I think this is like a weird, <laughs> yeah, let's be very clear. I'm a very nice person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> it honestly, in listening to this, it makes it made me want to make an unlikable character for my next campaign. Like I, I, I was listening to you. I'm like, this actually would be so much fun in a way that is like not, I think, I think there are ways to make characters who are unlikable, who are not combative with other characters. Right. right. Um, and I'm like, that would be really, really fun to explore for, for a new game. So I think I might try that. I think there is a freedom to unlikable characters because it opens mm-hmm. you up to more choices. Yeah, where, because that's true. Because if you're unlikable, you can still do the like likable thing because you're trying to curry like it, it's just selfish. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're, you know, lawful good or if you're, you know, paladin or something, you see a lot of choices and you have to push them to the side. Whereas yeah. if you play someone who is unlikable or has is selfish or has some of these negative qualities, you can play it as great, you embracing those qualities, or maybe you're learning to let those go and you can have mm-hmm. a bit more of an arc to it, which this character did not learned nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We we played this game. I deliberately learned nothing about tarot cards. I okay. opened the deck mm-hmm. for the second time when we played. Amazing. And we used, um, yes. I've got the, the writer, what is this? The the Arthur Edward Waite. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking of a tarot deck, this is probably the one you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pamela Coleman-Smith is the artist yeah. of the cards. Um, so so very, yeah. very evocative, but like the, the images are kind of, older like like they feel like of antiquity kind of so all we played with were the cards is our second time seeing them and inside this deck came with like a little booklet that kind of was a very brief guide of like what the cards meant Mm -hmm. and i did this deliberately because i wanted to try it as someone who had no idea what they were doing to see like how does this game feel for someone who has never touched tarot cards or done a tarot reading before Mm -hmm. and it was really pretty uh seamless i think you know we we would figure out the prompts and we would turn over the cards and we'd you know have to really quick reference like okay what's the five words this thing means sure and something about this particular pamphlet if you get it there's always like six words for each card and the last one is always some antiquated word that is not yeah like berayment i was like what (laughs) is a weird one it's it's not my favorite like interpretation book Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some better ones out there, uh, or at least at least for me, I, I I prefer kind of different styles. But it is really it does give you a lot to work with, though. You know that that list of words you can pick any one of them and be inspired by it. And it is it is a, a broad list of words. As I was playing, I would find myself like reading out the five or six words mm-hmm. very quickly, locking onto one of them and being like, okay, that's the guide for this scene. Cool. Yeah. That was the deck that I used to design Anamnesis. So it was also my first tarot deck. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think at the time of designing Anamnesis, it was the only one I owned. Um, So, and I did want to, I I had considered when designing what deck to use, whether to use that deck or a different deck. And I thought that, you know, being kind of the more uh, quote unquote traditional tarot designs, that it would be interesting to design anamnesis using that deck. So there are certain prompts that are inspired by certain cards. I don't know that I can name them off the top of my head, but Mm -hmm. I remember when I was like coming up with prompts at the end of that, 
once I had a list of prompts, I was intentional about which prompts went with which card. So some of them match up, some of them don't, but there are certain ones that after coming up with a prompt, I was like, oh, this, I think this one fits the three of pentacles best. Um, And so I put it under three of pentacles. So um, I, but that was mostly based on the art actually of the original Pamela Coleman cards. So that was uh so you might see like a little bit of influence there um if you're using that deck i generally tried to use the interpretations of the cards but every now and then i did find myself looking to the art of the cards because the art mm. is particularly for this deck is very evocative it yeah it it has that feeling of religious occult it mm-hmm. it's just the images you think of yeah which is evocative and, and which you know kind of gets your blood pumping in a certain way I loved playing it without knowing about these things. I am very excited to learn a little bit more about tarot and be what I really want. The experience I really want is to be able to read a prompt and then turn over the card and immediately have that aha moment of knowing what it is. Yeah. Suspense and revelation are better when you don't have to immediately confer to a booklet. (laughs) 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 I agree. But that being said, it is still very easy and quick and fun to have to like look at this thing, kind of have your idea of it. So, you know, see death and be like, mm-hmm. oh my God, what does that mean? And then, you know, flick through your booklet and be like, oh, okay, it means this, 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 and this. There's, there's a fun one-two punch of that, of where you mm-hmm. see something that you don't fully understand and then have someone tell you what it means and then have to conflate the two. So you have your initial sure. reaction to whatever the card is from this evocative art, from the name, temperance, the world, the hanged man. Mm-hmm. And then you see what those things mean. And so you're always going to be influenced by kind of both, uh, which is very fun. The 80s are over and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you and you got touched by the weird and it made you wild and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter, featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. I love how the character in the game wasn't familiar at all with tarot and how that came out so many times. Yeah. Um, that just getting his like initial responses of seeing all of them, like the hangman being like, that's, that's bad. That looks bad. That doesn't, <laughs> I, right. I got, I, it made me laugh a lot. <laughs> um, also uh, trying to pronounce, I'm still, I still don't, I, I always mispronounce it. Hierophant. Hierophant. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only reason I, I know the only reason I know Hierophant is because a season of Dimension Twenty has a character whose title is Hierophant Rex. Oh, so great. I was like, okay. Oh, okay, great. Uh, thank I, you, Brendan. Really Morgan. made me laugh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, this is this is me every time I draw this card. <laughs> so um, that was great. It's a great word, Hierophant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I've I've played through this game. Very fun. I'm excited to play it again without imposing additional limitations mm-hmm. on myself. I do want to talk a little bit about writing solo TTRPGs because I feel like this is true with most art forms and most games. The more you understand about how a thing is created, the better you can understand how it's like consumed, kind of. Sure. So, so the more I understand about how you write it, the easier and better it is to play it. You know, mileage may vary on that statement, but... Mm-hmm. but <laughs> But I'm curious about how you approached writing some of these prompts and how you approached writing things that were evocative enough to kind of really get at the meat of a character. Because each of these Mm -hmm. things has to be a question that 
again, like I said before, it's kind of coming at you sideways and making you question this character in interesting ways. Yeah. How did you go about writing these prompts? What did you find most effective for like some of your favorite ones? First, I created the outline um, as far as like what each act was about, um, you know, what where it was set in, um, what I was trying to get at with each act. Mm-hmm. And I brainstormed a few prompts for each act, but then I actually tried to really kind of put myself in the situation of each act. So the best example of this is act two is about walking around town. So I actually went downtown on a nice day, downtown being a really tiny little town in rural (laughs) New Hampshire. (laughs) Um, And I walked around and I had my phone and I just jotted down like different prompts in my notes app as I was walking around. Um, So I think the prompt of you know, seeing somebody walking with a kid that came from walking around town and seeing somebody with a kid and being like, oh, that sounds, you know, that's something that a character could remember that they have a kid or be thinking about their childhood, be thinking about their parents, right? There's a lot of different pieces of a character that you can get from a prompt like that. So, and also different buildings that, that I was seeing as I was walking, there was I came up with a lot of prompts that way. Uh, same thing with Act Three. I just walked around my apartment and I was like, "What can I? What do I see here that I could make a prompt out of?" I think there's a prompt about like a book on a bookshelf catching your eye, and that one I got from just walking around. Um, I have sticky notes all over the place, and so there's a prompt about. I think there's a prompt about leaving a note for yourself. Unless that one was cut, to be honestly, I um, th- there were there were some prompts that were edited and cut along the way, and and to be <laughs> honest, I, some, there's still a couple that like linger in the back of my head. Sure. Um, so that was one method that I used that really helped. The hardest act to write was Act Four because those questions. I really wanted that act to be about reflection and how people reflect and process things and um, and not just information, but emotion as well. Um, if you're going through something, what do you do to help you through that? And that was difficult. You know, it was, it was um, because I had to kind of get out of my own head with it too. There's prompts there that aren't really how I would necessarily process something, but I really had to think about different methods that I've heard of other people using. Um, I think I might have asked a couple of my friends about it too, being like, "What do you do when you need to, when you need to think, when you need to process your feelings?" So that was that was definitely the hardest one to write. But I also wrote like a whole bunch of prompts for each act, and then I ended up cutting the ones that I felt were weakest. So. I didn't just write 14 prompts. I off, There were a couple of acts where I wrote closer to 18, 20 prompts, and then I cut out the ones that I didn't like as much or that I felt were a little too specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were, those were kind of my main strategies. It's funny that you said that Act 4 was the hardest to write because it mm-hmm. also was like the hardest to perform and the hard, mm-hmm. hardest to, to do. Yeah. And, and part of that was we imposed the technical limitation of by that point, I had, Abby's character had left, so now I was sure. alone in a room. But that that is the time where in this game, everything else is coming at you. Mm-hmm. And now it's much more reflective and internal. So it by the time you get to act four, you kind of have to have established the character enough to know how they would right. feel. Whereas mm-hmm. all the other ones are kind of, here's a stimulus, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And that's easier to imagine because you can kind of put yourself in that in that place Once you're getting to act four, it is, you know, you started crying. Why? Yeah. And it's much more internally motivated, which is harder in general because you now have to, like, inhabit this this, uh, fictional character that you've created. Sure. And also, if you're performing, I now have to, like, talk out loud and, you know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) find a way to uh, justify it in world. Mm -hmm. So it it was the hardest, but but it was the... I think that was the time when that character came most alive. So I think everything mm-hmm. up till then, it was kind of me as him and also him. He's kind of like, he's keeping his options open, kind of. He's like, okay, yeah, I live in this part of town. Kind of, you know, who knows? It's yeah. kind of, 
it keeping it vague because he doesn't want to, you know, give away that he doesn't have his memory and right, is right. trying to figure shit out. By the time you get to Act Four, and by the time you get to Act Four in uh, our game, the, the only other person there who's observing him is gone. He's mm-hmm. now got to just kind of make the calls of who he is. Whereas everything else is just kind of taking in information, figuring out like, okay, which of this do I want to incorporate into this new personality? By Act Four, you're making those choices. Like mm-hmm. he's choosing that. Oh, I guess I like war things. Oh, I guess I won this relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that line was. <laughs> I loved that. That was that that uh, there were there were little lines, especially in Act Four, that like really revealed a lot about mm-hmm. this character and his little bit about like, oh, I won. I loved that that piece that was so interesting well and that you know just that one sentence says mm-hmm. so much about this person because it says yeah victorious okay it's a positive thing it's mm-hmm. also saying like that by claiming victory you're implying a conflict you're implying that there's a loser and that this sure. is a competition so now it says oh he's thinking about this in terms of competition there's a winner there's a loser i've got to oh. beat you yeah and now it's more of a negative connotation to a positive emotion that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I also thought that it was interesting that, you know, he had listed out a few of the definitions and chose victory, right? Like victory was yeah. the one that he was like, oh, victory. I like victory. I'm victorious. Like, you know, out of, out of these, because some of them weren't as positive of an emotion. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that he picked up victory for himself was um, also very interesting, I thought. And I think there, there were echoes of that early on that he was always going to look for the most favorable outcome of mm-hmm. when she's listing. I think it's uh, whichever card, one of the options is favorable marriage. Oh, He's yeah. He's like, oh, great. Yeah. I'll take that. Like, yes, uh-huh. please. Like looking at tarot as a, you know, menu upon which to choose mm-hmm. rather than a reflective thing which is why you know yeah. it, the tragedy of him looking at the tower and being like oh this is nice <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> oh this looks pretty yeah. the line about like liking the tower and not realizing the people falling from it was i think my favorite line in the entire thing yeah. um every now, this is another thing with improvisation every now and then you just hit something and when you yeah. hit it, it feels way better than if you had already written it. <laughs> so strong, strong recommendations for improvisation in all art forms. Mm-hmm. There's just a little bit of extra magic there that you don't get when it's been edited and edited. Yeah. Which is funny because this is, you know, a personal journey for me. When, when I first moved to New York City, a bunch of my friends were comedians. And a lot of them did improv comedy through like UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade. Okay. And when you're young and in New York City and all your friends do comedy, you go to their shows and mm-hmm. when you're young and your friends are doing improv shows, they're usually bad. <laughs> so I sat through a lot of bad improv comedy. Uh, yeah. And it's it's not necessarily that they were bad. They were learning. Like, you sure, know, it, of it's, course. It's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. And many of them have gone on to be professional comedians or awesome. have given up comedy and done other things. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it kind of tainted my view of improvisation, especially mm-hmm. in comedy. Okay. And I— yeah. For a long time, had the the thought that why would you ever improvise when you can write? Like like mm-hmm. writing a s- sketch will always do better than improv because a sketch is just improv that you edit and make better. Like mm-hmm. you know, the first draft is never the good draft. You're never releasing the first draft. And here I am doing uh, an art form all about improvisation. So yeah. I've, I've come around, <laughs> and I think I was my naivete as a 22 year old uh, is mm-hmm. coming through. I improv is definitely something that it's it's like the number one thing that I strive to improve at as like a player and a GM um, because my my improv skills are not phenomenal um, but it's something that I am you know it, it playing RPGs really helps with those mm-hmm. skills it, it, it I've I've improved over time and I want to keep improving and honestly like playing silly characters with friends is a really great way to do that well i i've said this on the show before and i say it in person a lot that if you have a three-hour conversation with someone like you you meet a brand new acquaintance you have a Mm three-hour conversation at a coffee shop you will learn far less about them than if you play role-playing game for like 15 minutes i absolutely agree with that a hundred percent yeah and i think a lot of that is because when you are in that like true like play space like very childlike like hey i've got an invisible sword you've got a sword stopping shield let's Mm -hmm. 
fuck around and, and play it out. So rarely in adult life is it like comfortable and easy and common to get into that pure imagination space. Mm-hmm. And what I love about tabletop role playing games is that they encourage you to get in that space. And when they're well written and when they're well created, they make it very easy to get into that space. Yes. And that because it's a, it's, if you've never done it before, and you know, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast about, you know, indie games have likely played a lot and they've, you don't realize how difficult it can be for someone brand new. Mm-hmm. But the activation energy required to get over the hump and getting like, getting out of your own way to inhabiting a character, doing a silly voice, pretending to be a thing, and like seeing the adventure in your mind mm-hmm. can often be a lot because you haven't done it for 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. It's not a normal part of adult life necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really appreciate Anamnesis and and other games that I lo- that I've called out, you know, Ten Candles, Wander Home, because they do so much work for you to get you to that space. Because the the faster and easier you can get to that space, the less friction that it takes, the more time you can have fun and live in that like that slope, that fun slope going down. Like you know, they yeah. get you to the top of the hill, so you can just sled on down. <laughs> That's something that I also think is really nice about solo games, um, because if you are new to TTRPGs and you want to get into them, but you feel self-conscious about being a character in front of other people and uh, role-playing conversation and uh, doing that improvisation, then playing a solo game can kind of help you practice that. It can help you get into that space by yourself um, Mm -hmm. without other people watching, (laughs) right? Right. I think it, it it can be personal and you can let yourself be silly and let yourself practice making a character in telling a story through this character without having a whole group watching you. There are many people I know who don't exercise their like creative muscles that much in this very like particular creating a fiction way. They, mm-hmm. they exercise their, their creativity in different ways. They may paint, yeah. they may draw, they may, uh, you know, play sports in, in a way that is creative and fun and fulfilling and, and that scratches that itch. But if you, it's like anything, if you haven't practiced it, it's going to be tough. Like a lot of people say, oh, I can't draw. But then if you ask them, okay, how many hours this week did you practice? They'll say, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the reason people can draw well is because they practice drawing. Yeah. And just practicing or I don't even want to put it as practicing because practicing makes it sound like work. Living in a exploring character, exploring this kind of creativity that you might not do on a day to day in the privacy of your own home, kind of by yourself gets you just that little further up the hill of making it easier and easier and easier to dive in uh, the next time you play with your friends and stuff. I think two-player games are really good for this too. You know, once Mm -hmm. if there's somebody who you really trust that you're really comfortable around, right, and you want to play a two-player game with them um, because you don't mind feeling more silly around this person or you don't Mm -hmm. mind kind of um, practicing exploring these worlds and characters with this person, um, then that's a great way to kind of, you know, keep it to somebody who you trust, right? But then to have somebody who you can bounce thoughts off of, um, somebody who can explore with you. You know, as we talked about near the beginning, sometimes having an an outward, sometimes having another person at the table really helps for creating characters and creating worlds. And so I've, I've definitely... I've fallen in love with two-player games pretty recently um, in the last year, maybe. And uh, I really want to play more of them because they're just... I think that solo games can be really intimate of an experience. You can explore things that you might not be comfortable exploring around a whole group of people. But two-player games also, I think, are very intimate in a way. You know, you, you're telling the story, you're telling these, you're talking about these characters with just, like, one other person. And the two of you together are making something just yourselves. And I think that that is, I think that can be really powerful. And, you know, you can experience that in group games too, but um, there's something about just like two people telling the story that is really interesting to me. I just had a conversation a couple of days ago with um, Jeff Stormer from Party Mm -hmm. of One. We we had a big conversation about tabletop role-playing games and he recommended me a number of of games, including uh, Starcrossed, which is a great two-player game. I love Starcrossed. (laughs) Which which Starcrossed has the best tagline of any game I've ever heard. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know about the game. Starcross is a game about two people who want to, but shouldn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And like, oh, what a great line. <laughs> Whoever, what, what, I got to talk to that person because I want to know the feeling that they felt when they wrote that line. Yeah. 
But we were talking about two-player games a little bit, and it occurred to me during that conversation that this recording was the first time I'd ever played a solo role-playing game and also a two-player role-playing game. Yeah, oh, okay. Oddly enough, because... And it, it was a very intimate experience with, with someone, mm-hmm. obviously, my now fiancé, I trust sure. uh, greatly. Yep. But me being someone who is very comfortable performing beca- through this show, I did find myself a little bit, just a little bit on the back foot of being... Mm a little more timid to start because I'm performing for an audience of one and it's the person I'm, you know, most comfortable with in the whole world. Yeah. That was a surprising emotion to feel. Also like mm-hmm. exhilarating and fun and it's it's a trust exercise between, you know, me and my my partner and stuff. But it was interesting to experience that and, you know, have someone watching me learn a thing and also yeah. us doing it together, which was very fun, a very very intimate and fun and creatively fulfilling uh, process. Yeah, I think that one thing that's really interesting about RPGs is that you can, you know, as you're saying, you can play with the people who you feel closest with, who you're most comfortable with, who you trust the most, and still feel a little uncomfortable, a little, like, outside of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, like, once you start playing, that kind of warms up a little bit, and it's—but it's, but there's this—I um, think sometimes there's this assumption that— if you have like the perfect group of people to play a game with, that everything is going to go really smoothly. Um, but that sometimes it takes that practice. It takes that warming up. It takes that kind of initial first session, initial first hour of the game mm-hmm. um, to kind of get the ball rolling on that. And games that, you know, you mentioned like 10 Candles Wander Home, right? Games that kind of like help you set that up a little bit more, you know, give you questions to consider to help you get more comfortable in your character at the table, I think are really beneficial as opposed to something, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons. It's a little bit tough sometimes to start a new campaign with new people who you've never met before. It's tough to start a new campaign with new characters, even if you all know each other really well, I feel like there's always this initial, like, do we start in a tavern, right? <laughs> like, what is the right. first thing? How do you, and the first in-person, the first in-character conversation is always, like, a little tricky, right? It's always a little bit difficult to start. At least that's been my experience. I am not, as I mentioned before, I'm not a master of improv. <laughs> so sometimes I find it a little bit tricky to really, like, when you first dive into it. But fortunately, you know, with the right group of people, that that warms up pretty fast normally. D&D is a great game. There, there are a lot of people who would disagree, but D&D is trying to serve a lot of masters with everything they put out. And it's sure. also trying to be the Swiss Army tabletop role-playing game. Yeah. It, it has mechanics that are very robust that can do kind of every game. The problem with that is that it requires so much extra work from the game master and the players to mm-hmm. get from Swiss Army Knife to, okay, which which comb am I trying to pull out of this oh, to yeah. play? Whereas with something like Anamnesis, Ten Candles, Wander Home, every aspect of the writing of the game is pushing everyone towards a single path, mm-hmm. not in a way that is constricting or railroady, just in a way that's saying, okay, here's the type of fun you're playing. Are you looking for a tragic horror game? Great. Mm-hmm. Ten Candles, everything about Ten Candles, from the mechanics to the writing, tells you the tone. Yeah. Anamnesis, are you looking to like explore yourself starting from Tabula Rasa as a palimpsest and come back together into something? Great. Every single aspect of that game is carving you towards that path. And it is a real boon. I say the word boon a lot recently, and I, <laughs> I like it, though, so I'm going to keep doing it. It's a it's real great. boon to players and game masters to have someone do some of that cognitive and emotional heavy lifting that is so tough at the very start of something that is already out of everyone's comfort zone a little bit mm-hmm. so that all you have to do is kind of give that little tap and then the ball's rolling down the hill. Yeah. So it is the the difference between a role-playing game and a very well-written role-playing game is how much lift you're able to give to the game master and to the players. And mm-hmm. I think Anamnesis does a great job of getting you right to the edge. You have to just give that little tap and then oh, down the you. hill. <laughs> 
I think that too, that with games like D&D, right, that are trying to be the whole Swiss Army knife, um, that it is, you know, a lot of GMs will homebrew things, right? But there's a lot of the foundational mechanics, right? Like how a class works in D&D, how dice rolls work in D&D, right? A lot of that stays pretty similar. Yeah. When in games like Dread, for example, which we mentioned uh, mm, in the yes. first episode, Dread, Wretched and Alone. Yeah, yeah. So those, when you're designing a game that has one very specific setting or tone or genre in mind, um, you can design it from the ground up with that in mind. And that includes the mechanics, right? So like there's, I've never, it's, I'm sure that somebody has done it before. I have not yet seen a D&D game use a dump, a tumbling dice tower. I'm sh- tumble, tumbling block tower. I am yeah. sure that somebody's done it because it sounds like a great idea to like, oh, yeah, you know, sure. your characters are trying to run from something or, you know, whatever, right. You're doing a heist and the block tower is kind of like your clock, like, a clock from Blades in the Dark in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have to pull from the tower. Anyway, I I think that's, I might try that sometime. But <laughs> basically, <laughs> the foundational mechanics of these games, um, when, when a game is written knowing the exact tone that it's going for, you really see that in the text. And you see that through the tumbling dice tower. T- I keep saying dice tower. You see that I through the tumbling. I've, I've infected oh, both of us. <laughs> That's why um, you, the tumbling block tower in Dread, you know, in Anamnesis, the tarot cards are super important to it. When I was first brainstorming Anamnesis, I the tarot tarot wasn't what I originally started with. It it came very quickly in the development of the game. But when I was first thinking about, okay, I want to tell a story about somebody learning about themselves after memory loss, I kind of went through my little Rolodex of um, materials in my brain and knowing that I wanted to limit down to just one or two materials and landed on tarot cards because it just felt so tonally correct for what I was going for. And so that's something that you really get from a lot of these indie games. They're very specific and they, and that's what makes them so unique and interesting. Great. Sam, before we get out of here, can you tell the people uh, what else you're working on and where they can find you online if they want to learn more? I am working on Death of the Author, which is a game that uses the same mechanics as Anamnesis, but tells a very different story about a character who is trying to gain agency over their story. But also, I am writing a game as part of the Far Horizons co-op, another solo game. This one is actually a Wretched and Alone game. So it's a hack Very of fun. Christmas That's the Wretched. Yes. And it is a kind of co- like a an absurd comedy game in the style of like Welcome to Night Vale that is about being a research assistant and working with participants. I am pulling on my five years of research assistant experience. And so the game is kind of this comedy about being a research assistant, but it also teaches a little bit about what a research assistant actually does. There's a lot of games out there that are about mad science and about like weird science. And I feel like there's not a lot of good media out there that really actually describes what you do, you know, like mm-hmm. how you recruit people and you go through the informed consent process. And anyway, I'm, I won't talk about it at length, but <laughs> so <laughs> obviously it's got this absurdism to it, but within that absurdism, there are a lot of nuggets of reality that I am trying to put in this game form. So I've almost finished the rough draft of that and the expected release of that is May. It's called Outliers. Just as a start. <laughs> Love it. Outliers. Yep. So those are kind of the big ones I'm working on now. If you want to check out my, more of my work, you can find my games at blinkingbirchgames.itch.io. And I'm on pretty much all platforms at Goblin Mixtape. Especially check out the Goblin Mixtape TikTok for great breakdowns of indie TTRPG games. Thank you. And that is all for this season of My First Dungeon, Anamnesis. You can follow us on Twitter, as always, at My First Dungeon. If you want to hear a little bit more from me and Sam, you should consider subscribing to the 20-Sided Newsletter, our bi-monthly newsletter about tabletop role-playing games, game design, and cool things going on in this great community. Subscribers get access to extended interviews with our guests, as well as exclusive first looks at games that Elliot and I are designing, and so much more. Uh, We had a great conversation after our 
first interview. It's like an extra half hour. So if you like this series and you haven't heard that already, go check it out. And if you like this show, the very best way you can support us is by going to your podcast player right now, clicking follow and leaving us a review. It helps more people find the show and lets us know that you like what we're doing. And as always, remember, if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. If you're hearing this, that means you listen to every last second of this episode. And if you simply cannot wait until the next episode drops, you should head over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and become a member of the Dice Pool. Fresh! For just a few bucks a month, you'll get cast talkbacks, original games, and a full-length bonus actual play each and every month. As of the end of 2023, there's already over 20 hours of bonus audio, plus a whole bunch of other goodies to enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and jump on into the dice pool. We'll see you there. Splash!